episode number 83, number 83. And uh, yeah, here we are again. This is kind of quick after episode 82, but uh, liking it, got some time and thought we'd do, uh, do some more info for you. As you know, the podcast is basically in three pieces where we do political Second Amendment type commentary. Then we talk a little bit about the gun culture, and then we go into my favorite, which is Q&A. Questions and answers. And we always seem to get some interesting ones. And if you have a question that you would like to uh, have me take a crack at, I am at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. And I'm also at uh, Podbean, Podbean, where we do our caring. And uh, this is a note for you, Mr. Clown Bear. Haven't heard from you lately. So uh, I know you've got some bunch of things that are uh, probably burning questions you have. So let me know. Let me know. Okay. Um, you know, getting into the political stuff, I, I'm always kind of thinking about how, how we kind of got to where we are and, and why things are the way they are. And uh, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I laugh at conspiracy theories. You know, the JFK ones are all laughable to me. Um, especially the guy. He's actually here in Kansas. I think he's here in Kansas. The the one, I think his name is Bonar Memminger. Who, his his theory was that JFK was killed by the, the uh, an AR-15 that was in the Secret Service car behind the presidential limousine. Went off accidentally. Of course, he doesn't really account how the windshield and all that and there was no empty you know he doesn't count for anything but that was it and that was just based on the zapruder film of you know that horrible bullet hit and uh you know that's all nonsense so i'm not a conspiracy theory guy i don't believe in bilderbergers and and all the rest of this the illuminati i don't believe in any of that i don't think skull and bones runs the world um all all of this kind of stuff I i don't believe it so here i am going to pitch a conspiracy theory no, not really, but you know, I do think though that there are unseen forces. There are people of unseen influence and cabals of people that make things happen. And in politics, it, it has to be that way. And here's here you're gonna have to kind of follow me along on this a little bit, and I'm gonna lay it out as best I can, but it is pretty complex. But here's what I'm thinking. Okay, it our politics has gone pretty much pretty predictably uh, since about since about 1992 Bill Clinton was kind of a dark horse came in in an open field um, I think the political establishments had pretty much the smart money was betting that George HW Bush would be reelected it was wrong but they, that's what they probably thought would happen so it, it didn't really matter too much that a dark horse Bill Clinton from Arkansas basically becomes a nominee h ross perot disrupts the race and basically it falls into bill clinton's hands he's elected president well in the republican party the next thing that happened is that uh all of a sudden it becomes bob dole's turn okay 96 clinton is still riding pretty strong he's a very popular president um in spite of the fact that the assault weapon ban really hurt him and he kind of lost control of the uh, the House of Representatives, but still, but still, in '96, Bill Clinton is popular enough as president to be reelected. So the Republicans gave the turn to run to Bob Dole, party man, 
consummate party man, gave it to him. Hey, there may be a chance he doesn't upset Wynn, and, and that's it. And his vice president was a guy named Jack Kemp, who'd played professional football and been a congressman and, you know, kind of a, a basically a loyal Republican, um, served in a couple of administrations. So, obviously, Dole Kemp go down to defeat. So whose turn is it in 2000 if you're a Republican or a Democrat? Well, if you're a Democrat, it's Al Gore. And Al Gore basically gets the nomination, chooses Joe Lieberman as his running mate. And so you have Gore-Lieberman. There you go. And that's, that is the establishment pick. That's the natural order of things. Same thing with the Republicans. Republicans kind of have an open field, but obviously George W. Bush has got all the inside advantages all of the party apparatus is behind him so he becomes he becomes a nominee he wins disputed very tight election but he wins is re-elected in 2004 2004 the democrats put up wooden john Kerry and john edwards who's supposed to be like this young dynamic guy turns out he's a complete a complete turd you know cheating on his cheating on his wife who's dying of cancer and and you know on and on and on you know whole this whole thing so they they basically go down in flames okay after george w bush is done um hillary clinton is essentially kind of the the anointed one i mean she's she's the odds on favorite on the democrat side and on the republican side because George W. Bush had nosed out John McCain in the 2000 nomination process. It's John McCain's turn. So the Republicans kind of go through some, uh, you know, enough of a show, but McCain gets a nomination. And after that, it's, it's pretty much Hillary Clinton is the odds on favorite for the Democrats, except Barack Obama comes out of left field and runs to the left of her and basically by using a lot of a lot of different techniques and the fact that she's a terrible campaigner um, you know he basically he gets a nomination away from her and it was hers to lose and she lost it so kind of upended things but Barack Obama was still an establishment guy he was still a party guy establishment guy okay because uh, John McCain had nosed out Mitt Romney in 2012 it's Mitt Romney's turn to run okay Romney runs. He runs against Obama running for re-election. Even though the economy's terrible and a lot of things are really in the toilet, Obama is personally popular enough. He essentially easily wins re-election over Romney because Romney didn't give anybody a reason to vote for him. So that brings us to 2016. Okay. The Republican field is kind of wide open. Romney's not running. Um... McCain by this time is way past his expiration date and in fact would only live another two years. So, you know, the field's kind of wide open and you had Lindsey Graham, you had Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, um, Rand Paul, you know, all these kind of guys are in there and there, there was a few others. I, I, you know, really can't even remember them. But uh, so you had this really crowded Republican field. And one of those guys was going to get the establishment backing to run, probably Jeb Bush, because he had the the connections. So, you know, he, he was kind of, I don't know if he was ever the odds-on favorite, but he was certainly, certainly a major, a major power factor in there. Well, in 2015, a reality TV star comes down a gold escalator and announces he's going to run for president. That is Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who had made his, he'd made billions of dollars as a developer and builder in New York 
and had really kind of cemented his public persona and fame as a reality TV star and kind of a a person in the celebrity culture at least to some to some degree um, he, he basically announces for president I along with a lot of other people were pretty skeptical I figure uh all this is gonna do is hand it to Hillary Clinton remember she got nosed out by Barack Obama in 2016 it's her turn to run and she was not only the presumptive nominee essentially but she was also the the uh, um, you know just odds-on favorite for the general election it was gonna be a coronation we'll talk a little bit about that so anyway who's gonna go up against Hillary Clinton was really the question well all of a sudden the national media which is allied with the Democratic Party really kind of heavily promotes Trump, gives him a lot of good press. They let him go on all the shows and talk. Trump starts gaining traction. In the polls, all of a sudden, Trump is either at the top or near the top. So it becomes a it becomes a deal. Now, the Democrats and the news media love this because they think it's the Republican Party committing suicide. They think the Republicans are going to commit suicide by one of two ways. Trump will either damage every candidate so badly that they'll never they'll never win against Hillary you know they just won't recover from the damage they have in the primaries plus they'll have to spend a lot of money or B if if Trump got the nomination he's just gonna get trounced by Hillary he'll be a joke it, it'll be like running you know one of the three stooges against Hillary I mean it just isn't gonna it isn't gonna work they see him as this caricature buffoonish character that that is just gonna implode so it kind of it kind of moves along and Trump is gaining enough momentum so the Republican establishment is starting to get worried. They are really starting to get worried. So when the first debate rolls around, it falls on the shoulders of one each Megan Kelly. Remember Megan Kelly? You actually have to reach back into your memory banks. She was the hot property of Fox News, this younger, very attractive very well-spoken and articulate conservative commentator network reporter you know network correspondent type of person and she'd paid her dues she'd come up through the morning shows and all the rest of this and and had her own uh, had her own nighttime show well she's one of the moderators or questioners of the this debate and it clearly fell on her to take out Trump and you know she prepared questions about the public feud that Trump and Rosie O'Donnell had had which was really a big publicity stunt face it uh, both of those characters got a lot of media out of it you know the remarks or the insults and the counter remarks and counter insults that all plays in the part of that celebrity culture thing I was talking about earlier so Trump got wind of this. Apparently, he got wind of this. Gets Roger Ailes on the phone and said, "Hey, you know, why are you guys just trying to set me up to to take a beating?" And and they kind of get into it, and I, nothing's ever really resolved. So when the debate rolls around, and Megyn Kelly basically accuses him, "Hey, you've called women pigs," and blah 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 blah, and he said, "Hey, this was just a feud with Rosie O'Donnell." He he basically deflected it well enough so that he was able to come back at Megyn Kelly with with a sledgehammer. And I mean, he smoked her. Remember, he said she she was evil and she had blood coming out of her eyes and nose and and uh, you know, inference was some other places and everything. A lot of people thought that, 
but didn't want to say anything. You know, she was clearly out to do a hit job, and everybody saw it, everybody knew it, and Trump called it out. Just like what he said about Rosie O'Donnell, people were thinking, but nobody said. She is an obese, repulsive, ignorant lesbian, and a lot of people thought that, but nobody wanted to say it. And he basically said that. I don't think he called her a lesbian, but I think he uh, um, definitely definitely left no doubt that he thought that she was a, a pretty repulsive individual. So the whole Megyn Kelly thing backfires, okay? You know, and we're, just, we're starting to see a pattern here. We're starting to see a pattern where, you know, these and in these debates... Trump basically goes after whoever the closest person or the top person is, and he basically deconstructs them. I mean, he takes Jeb Bush apart. And Jeb Bush, face it, is a dud of a candidate, no charisma, no nothing, and Trump destroys him. Then Trump goes after Rubio, and, and along the way, he he, uh, he tears apart Graham and Rand Paul, and, and uh, through that whole debate and primary process he he basically it one after another you know it's like it's like the old west gunfighter cleaning up a town you know he's he's taking these guys on basically one at a time and just knocking them down so during during all that process um essentially the the republicans are start the, the establishment is starting to panic because all of a sudden this guy's looking real now and a lot of the stuff he's saying is stuff that people are thinking and people are wanting but nobody has ever come out and said before. Nobody said we should build a wall on the Mexican border uh, to stop all the bad things that are happening. Nobody said, you know, we should we should uh, get better trade deals. That we're getting that we're getting uh, raped on these trade deals, and we need to redo. So everything Trump is gaining traction on what he says. This is panicking the Republican Party. Plus, the anointed or the acceptable or establishment candidates, however you want to put that. Uh, on the Republican side are falling like dominoes, man. These guys, these guys can't stand up to it. You know, little Marco, Lion Ted, you know, sleepy, sleepy Jeb or no energy Jeb, you know, I mean, those, those guys, those guys are just going by the wayside. Nobody's going after them, following them. So it's a, you know, he's, he's basically doing what Donald Trump does. Donald Trump has been a success at everything he's ever tried. Not all of his ventures have been successful, but he was a very successful builder, a very successful, you know, guy who's kind of got into the culture. You know, I mean, who thought that a guy who built skyscrapers would be dynamic enough to kind of get into the celebrity culture? But he did. And then he also got into the reality TV culture. So Donald Trump has taken these taking these guys out. The Democrats and the media are still liking it. They think it's funny because they think this is one of the paths of suicide for the Republican Party. That's just what they think. That essentially that this guy is going to at some point implode and Hillary Clinton will win a resounding victory with a tremendous downtrace. You know, candidates underneath her uh, will also win. She'll the, the Democratic ticket all the way down the ballot will will, you know, just win. And that's where they'll be. So, and their polling, the fake polling is also telling them this. It's telling them that she's got a substantial lead on Donald Trump, that she's got a substantial lead against anybody. So that's where they're, that's where they're really going. So this is looking like a Hillary uh, coronation. Now, Hillary's got a few problems. 
You know, she's got all of a sudden Bernie Sanders is coming from the left the same way Barack Obama did. But he's basically a stupid old socialist, communist white guy. And he's not pulling the youth vote and a lot of the things that, that Barack Obama did. Plus the fact that <clears throat> the rules have already been set so that she's got this giant lead in these super delegates. And I think she needed like 1,600 delegates to win. Well, she starts out with a 500 delegate advantage with these super delegates. So all she's got to do is kind of break even with him, and she's eventually getting over the, the finish line, which is what she did. So, and then she chose some non entity as a running mate. Um, but again, Hillary is a terrible campaigner, as she was in 2008. She's got now all these problems with Benghazi and emails and all her misconduct as Secretary of State. And she's just not talking to the media. She's not exciting a lot of people. I mean, she just thinks, she believes the phony polling that says she's going to win by about 10, 10 points in the popular vote, which would mean she would win a resounding electoral college victory. So Trump appears always to be the underdog behind, but, un but fortunately for him, the polling was exactly wrong. And what happened was he got a, a resounding victory just absolutely you know electoral college wise yeah yeah california new york with the large populations their electoral votes and their popular vote kind of put hillary um the popular vote put gave her a higher total but still it didn't matter because the electoral college is what matters so donald trump wins and basically that's when you saw the left melting down the establishments melting down now, the Republican establishment is melting down, too. Remember the Never Trumpers? And the last vestiges you see of that is Mitt Romney. You know, there was, there was Bill Crystal, some stupid, you know, kind of, kind of uh, you know, commentator. Guy always had a, a smart-alecky grin and thought he was, you know, this super intellect. Guys like that. And the party establishment were in a panic now because guess what? Their nominee is this guy who is not a party man, not somebody they've chosen and everything else. So they both party establishments kind of work against Trump. They both do. Now the Republican establishment is getting chipped away. Trump puts enough of his own people in to places where he can put them. Some of the people in the party establishment see the light. So the Republican party establishment, the resistance is a whole lot less. The Democratic party establishment and the swamp, the larger establishment in Washington is melting down. And that's when you see a whole bunch of things start happening. Okay, uh, Hillary, Hillary basically loses, goes into seclusion and, and good riddance. You know, she's done forever. So now what you see is all of a sudden there's the bogus Russia investigation. And remember, we went through that for about a year and a half of who knew what, who did what, who said what, and it all turned out to be BS. All turned out to be garbage. Okay, that was their first shot at trying to get rid of Trump. The first coup d'etat, if you will. The next, the next thing they're trying to do is get a hold of his tax returns. Get a hold of Trump's tax returns because they think they can find something at least embarrassing, if not nefarious. Now, most people think, hey, if the IRS is happy with them, hey, so am I. You know, I don't, I don't need to go through tons of, of uh, tax returns. Even Trump doesn't go through his own tax return. He probably signs it, but they have they have armies of lawyers and, and accountants basically do that for him. So they're trying to get those, and I, I think they're still trying, but that's 
that was another loser deal. Now, in contrast, Barack Obama's academic transcripts and all this other stuff for a lot of for Obama and previous presidents all can remain sealed because that's their private business and nobody really needs to know. Okay, well then maybe that rule should apply towards the tax returns too. Okay, then we had the bogus impeachment because everybody knows that a lot of foreign countries are extremely corrupt. We're giving money to the Ukraine because we know Russia is picking on them and has started an insurgency in what a place called the Donbass, which are these, you know, border areas between Russia and, and Ukraine that have a lot of ethnic Russians who live there. They don't consider themselves Ukrainian and they say, why should I live in Ukraine? Everybody around me is Russian, so we want to be part of Russia. So all of that is all of that is happening. And so we're we've got all these national security deals with with uh, Ukraine. But unfortunately, when Biden was vice president, after his son Hunter was kicked out of the Navy for smoking dope or taking crack or something, but he was kicked out on drugs, he gets this sweet deal where he got paid somewhere between 50 and 150 or 200 thousand dollars a month from a Ukrainian energy company. And he also was making some deals with China and everything else. Well, when Trump kind of mentioned obliquely that this needs to be investigated on a phone call, there's an uproar. There's an impeachment over it. And they had no real witnesses. Nothing. They had nothing solid. And of course, it all failed. So the impeachment fails. Right after the impeachment fails, guess what? There's this, all of a sudden, this super virus that's in the background becomes a huge problem. Now, if the conspiracy theory part is, hey, maybe this is something that the Chinese, they didn't like us picking on them with the trade deals. Maybe this is something they unleashed on the world so that they could disrupt the world order, economic order of the United States is now the greatest energy producer. We're rebuilding a lot of our manufacturing capacity. China doesn't really like that. Maybe a pandemic can slow that down or reverse it. I tend to give that some credence that this thing was created because it hasn't died out like the regular flu and a lot of other things. So this thing gets unleashed on us. Trump handles it exceptionally well. The establishment, whether they were a part of it, of the conspiracy or whether they are just opportunists, they can't use this to take out Trump. Just doesn't work. He handles it really brilliantly, in my opinion. He handles it very, very well and the recovery very, very well. So that doesn't work. The next thing that pops up, so when, when it's clear that we're going to recover from this virus and everything else, it's not going to drive him from office. In fact, it's probably making him stronger. We now have all this unrest that if you can create essentially an insurgency in the United States, if terrorist organizations can start destroying major cities and you know this is starting to look like 1968 with a lot of the riots that went on if they can recreate 68 maybe they can drive him from office that way and and that really hasn't worked I, I would say that it's actually backfired but I would say that there's proof there's prima facie proof that there are unseen or unknown organizers financiers and powers behind this it used to be it used to be just absolute um, you know, rumor 
that trucks were showing up and dropping off a pallet of bricks or dropping off frozen water bottles that could be thrown at the cops or dropping off signs, dropping off this, dropping off that. Those were just rumors, but now we actually have them on tape. They've traced the people. They've traced them to George Soros organizations. And so, you know, that's that's there's something bigger behind this. This isn't just, hey, people in the housing projects are mad or, or in the inner city are mad and they're coming out and protesting. Then you also see these radicalized youth and it's people of all races, but there are a lot of, of white people who are coming from middle class families who are in their 20s and 30s or upper middle class families who've been radicalized and are part of these radical movements. So part of the picture you see are under the guise of Black Lives Matter, you see white people yelling horrible things at black police officers. So you, you got this really weird situation. This unrest was fermented and it was enabled by power or powers that be. And, you know, you start looking at all these things. That's nine things I've kind of mentioned. All of these things are leading you to believe that there have been several active coup d'etats of using different asymmetric techniques to remove Donald Trump from the White House. I mean, you can't, I don't know that there's any more of a compelling argument you could make other than other than if somebody got on television and confessed to it or something um, but when you connect all those dots you look at all those things you you sit there and go the establishment upended the the absolute virulent meltdown and hatred towards somebody who's an outsider coming in and now being the most powerful individual in the country and indeed in the world who's bypassed, effectively bypassed, the power structures of both political parties. And then when you look at all these things that have happened, you say, yes, yeah, well within their capability to do that or exploit that. This is just not a joke. And you look at this virus, you know, face it, six, seven months ago, Donald Trump was poised for a very, very good chance at re-election simply because the economy is doing well most people vote the economy and a lot of the small controversies whether they come out on Twitter or whatever else are just you know that's small ball and a lot of people don't pay attention or even remember it you know who, who remembers what the the Twitter controversy was even three weeks ago four weeks ago nobody does so they you know they've attacked personally they've attacked professionally they've attacked just trying to conduct the conduct of government business they've attacked everything to try to get Donald Trump out of office this just isn't this just isn't politics as usual this is a virulent coup d'etat to try to remove somebody from office and now they're going to attempt to use democracy to do that and i think voter fraud and everything else is going to be horrid and they're even trying to blackmail us Kamala Harris said it Kamala Harris said it she said that these riots aren't going to stop after the November election now whether she just says that because you know it's her big big mouth or she knows something I don't know I tend to think she knows something I tend I think she knows some of the enablers behind this and she knows what they're saying and thinking and she's putting that out there she was told to put that out there so that the people wouldn't think that this is just going to go away 
that this is just going to go away. And, uh, you know, this virus, the unrest and the virus have been very convenient for Democratic leaders. They've stopped, they stopped the economy. Now, they can't keep it from rebounding, but they're trying to. They're trying to, you know, keep everybody in masks, keep everybody out of churches, keep everybody out of restaurants. They are only grudgingly going along with the uh, with the efforts to reopen the economy. So there you go. I mean, there you actually go. This is a coup d'etat. I mean, and this is frightening. This to anybody who's lived through a number of presidential elections. And it doesn't matter if you go back to 2000, go back to even 1980, you know. There's politics, but this is something completely different. And, uh, you know, there are no, you know, if, if you have faith that the Democratic Party is anything but a destroy America, proto-communist organization, you're crazy. I mean, look at, look at John F. Kennedy. Look at John F. Kennedy, who we talked about at the very beginning with the conspiracy theories. John F. Kennedy today would be a very conservative Republican. He would be more conservative than Donald Trump. He was a member of the National Rifle Association, a life member. He actually uh, did some rifle competing, I understand, because he bought a National Match M1 rifle from the old DCM. There's a picture of him in the White House with uh, some of the early AR-15s. He's looking at those. He was a cold warrior. Think Bay of Pig. I mean... Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a guy who put a naval blockade on Cuba when Russians were steaming towards it. The Soviets were steaming towards it. This was not. This was not Joe Biden. This was not, you know, weak Hillary Clinton. This was not, you know, a Bernie Sanders. This was somebody who was quite different. And today, the beliefs he held would not be in the Democratic Party at all. He would be considered this ultra right-wing Republican. That's who he'd be considered as. So this is a very, very different, a very, very scary deal. Is there going to be a civil war? I don't think so. I think if Trump wins, he now has the mandate and the license to do a huge crackdown on a lot of this. And he will clean up, and, and it may be messy, but the streets will clean up. The streets will clean up. Right now, you just can't do it with the the way public perception and atmospherics are nothing can happen before this election after the election i think it's a different different game uh he's he's also attempting he he he's also angered a lot of people especially democrats with his you know appointment to fill the seat of the uh, deceased ginsburg before the election they they consider that unfair however you know it's completely within his constitutional authority but if if they get the supreme court then then you're toast uh, there's no more heller decisions you know we only got that one five to four we need a six to three or seven to two majority on that court and uh, you know after they replace after barrett replaces ginsburg you know, the only the only hope is that there's and, and a couple of those guys are retiring. Like Thomas is gonna retire at some point. He's been there thirty years. He's gotta be in his seventies. Uh, some of the other ones, I don't know. I think John Roberts is probably close to seventy. Um, some of these guys aren't gonna last forever. So we're gonna have to replace the ones that we've got 
and we're going to try to have to gain a seat here and there. You know, I think I think uh, Sotomayor is has got health problems, so we'll see. Maybe she'll resign and uh, we'll get another shot. But we need these need these next four years. That's for sure. So I just wanted to lay that out for everybody, and it's been 30 minutes of me talking, but there are nine things, starting from Donald Trump on the staircase to the unrest that we're seeing now in the cities, and it's primary debates, the Megyn Kelly character assassination attempt, Hillary's coronation, Russia, tax returns, impeachment, virus, and unrest. Those things cannot be unconnected. They're not a coincidence. Even if you throw one of them or two of them out as outliers, you know, the rest of it has to be connected. The the corruption in the FBI, the Strzok, McCabe, all that, you know, that, uh, who I can forget the other, the other one, Strzok, McCabe, and uh, Lisa Page, whatever that, all of that kind of corruption, Comey, all of that corruption, um, the Mueller, you know, all that corruption, um, it's it's insane, and uh, you can't throw all that out and say it's not connected. It's not influenced by. You can call it the swamp. You can call it the power elites. I don't care what you call it, but there is something there that does not value you and I. They do not value our votes. They do not value our rights, whether from First Amendment all the way up to Tenth Amendment, and it's certainly the Second Amendment. And I talked last time about what Joe Biden's gun control is going to look like and it's going to be pretty ugly. They're going to, they're coming for the semi-automatics and detachable magazines first. They're coming for everything else second. And as part of that second wave, anything that you are allowed to keep and you might be able allowed allowed to keep something. Uh there's going to be ammunition restrictions. You watch. You watch. That'll be the next proposal. You won't be able to stockpile ammo anymore. So anyway, uh, that's how that is all looking out. So um, that's really the first two parts of the uh, podcast. We'll get into some question and answers and some gun stuff here uh, right away. But I wanted to let that, I just felt I needed to air that and let it go. Let you think about it. Because that's the country we live in today. And the more you know, the better you will do. And the better choices you'll make. And uh tell everybody of like mind let's get out and vote because if we don't save the country this time every year they every election they always say this is the most important election of a lifetime this time it really is okay let's get into questions and answers and again uh, i gave it at the top of the uh, podcast where you can send those a uh, podbean is a great the comments there are a great place to post them so i got one saying who else is rocking 22s since the ammo shortage, I've been able to find some 22 ammo in places like Walmart or some of the sporting goods stores where I have not been able to find 9mm or 5.56. So I'm doing my, a lot of my practice shooting with 22s. If so, is anyone else doing this? Well, I can't answer for anyone else, but I can answer for me. And I've always kind of shot 22s. I like them. Um, not as much as I like a few other things, but if you've got some 22 stash and there it's easy ammo to to kind of put away a, a reasonable amount um you go buy a box every payday 
And by a box, I don't mean 50 rounds. I mean like a 500-round brick. Every payday, hey, within six months, you've got a nice little little store of, of 22s, and you can put them in an ammo can, and there they are. But, yes, I really like shooting them. Um, last couple of weeks, I've been really busy, and I haven't gotten out like I would like to. But, um, yeah, definitely not only target pistols, but there's some other fun pistols. I'm not a real huge fan of the Walther P22, but I have one, and I shoot it. And it's 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 okay. It's it's okay. But um, our friend of the podcast just bought a very nice Ruger Target model. Beautiful gun. Well worth the money. Just absolutely well worth it. And in fact, I actually like it so much. I don't need one, but I'm trying to connive my way into justifying buying one. But the Ruger 22 Target, that five and a half. I think it's five and a half inch barrel five or five and a half I think it's five and a half heavy barrel very very nice gun very very nice gun um, I'm not here to do an advertisement for it but if you check it out you'll like it 1022s are still around good guns very very good guns really it's about the best 22 auto loader that's probably ever been as far as reliability and everything else and if you're like me you like quirky guns I think CDNN still has some of the uh, STG 4422s. They're going up in price. They used to be about three bills. Now I think they're about four bills. But, um, you know, they're still out there. There's some Uzi 22s out there and, you know, AR 22s out there. Um, those things are all pretty cool. And, uh, you know, especially the AR 22s are, you know, about as good subcaliber training as you can, you can get. I haven't used mine for a while, but I do have an Atchison an Atchison kit, which was the grandfather of all the conversion kits. And, uh, you know, I used to put it in my SP-1 and shoot it. Now I, I don't really use it much anymore. But, hey, I might. I might if I can get 22s and I can't get 5.56. I might definitely be rocking a lot more 22. And I think you're going to see competitive shooting. You're already starting to see it a little bit. But some of the action shooting is going to move down to 22s also. And, you know, as long as there's a decent profit margin ammo companies will make it in the past it has been a very low margin item so it's been a low priority item but if that kind of changes and i hate paying more for anything but um that just might happen you know especially in light of i i think a thousand rounds of nine millimeter fresh manufactured stuff you know i think you can pay four to five hundred dollars for that now maybe even more by the time you hear this used to be just under two hundred dollars used to be you could buy surplus a lot cheaper than that and i think the yeah i think it was under 200 bucks for a case of uh like tall nine millimeter you know a thousand rounds and as a lot of us shooters will tell you a thousand rounds doesn't last very long that is what 20 boxes of 50 yeah 20 boxes of 50 and a couple of matches and a couple of practice sessions and you're well well down the road of using all that up. So 22s, eh? maybe a wave of the future. Maybe the, maybe the new hotness. I thought uh, 5.7 by 28 would be the new hotness. I think the new hotness now is going to be 22, low cost. I think some of this high, high-end stuff is going to be uh, a lot harder to find and a lot more expensive when you get it, especially low-density stuff like um, uh, 5.7 by 28 is you know it's i as intrigued as i am with one of those guns 
uh, the 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 whole ammo thing kind of kind of turns me off. So there you go. Uh, okay, you talked about your Bubba gun. Do you have an update? Well, it was really quick, but I do have one quick update. Um, it is getting a scope mount, scope base put on it now. Um, I'm going to be busy the next couple of weeks, so I'll, it'll probably be another month before there's another update. I've got a couple different scope options. They're all old, classic scopes. One is a Weaver K6, 6 power, like 6x32 or something, 6x28 maybe, I don't know. And I think it is 6x28, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's an old scope. It's, it's probably a 60-year-old scope, so I've got that. I do have a Weaver K4, but that's mounted on a uh, an M1A um, mount. And I don't feel like really deconstructing that. And then the other one is a, a Weaver 2.5, which is probably the leading contender right now because you know this is not a gun to use for any kind of long range. So I don't know that I need you know kind of a six power primitive six power scope. I don't know is going to help, but basically 2.5 power gives me some magnification gives me that single plane of focus you know the crosshairs that that are fine and if and especially i'm not looking to shoot long range so if i can go with 180 grain or even heavier bullets you know that's going to be quite a bit of wump close in say 150 or even 200 yards in that's going to be that's going to be a lot of power and so I would think that that's going to be a good a good deal. It still has the horrid stock, which, you know, in reality is going to be about 150 bucks to replace. You can't find the mangled stocks anymore. You know, you used to find GI stocks that people just cut off, but you can't find those anymore. The modern-made reproductions, whether they're sporting or the military style, very expensive. So I'll be looking around and see if I can find something that will be... Uh, be suitable but I think about 150 bucks would be the limit I'd spend on that so you know I'll be into this whole project for a lot less than 300 bucks and I think these guns you know the sporterized 1917s that are irredeemable as I said before they can't be more than you know a three to if, if it's a $400 gun I'd be amazed but $300 gun seems about right so Anyway, that is the Bubba Gun Update. Okay. Next question is asking me about something they did on InRange TV, which is the S333, which is the double barrel kind of revolver, snub nose revolver double barrel in 22 Magnum. You know, I just I just looked at it real quick. I didn't I didn't spend time. I didn't even watch the whole things. Um, you know, my my thought on those kind of guns is is that they're quirky. I like the fact that people are trying to design new guns. I think that's kind of cool. But the fact of the matter is, those designs are are usually very very gimmicky, and I just have no real interest in it. I don't believe that it's going to be very effective. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, there's years, there's decades, and there may be even, you could even say there's a century of both practical experience, research, anecdotal use, engineering expertise, what, however you want to slice it, behind a good snub nose revolver 
in 38 special. I mean, it just, that is a very, very tough combination to beat. It's, the cartridge is powerful enough, the guns can be made small enough, and so when you try to go to something quirky like the double barrel 22, which, you know, I, they detail all the problems with this, and it may be that the bullets are colliding, it may be that they're not getting stabilized, it may be this, that, or the other thing. Uh, I would say that, you know, the best thing to do is for, and I think those things cost like 450 bucks. Best thing to do is, is uh, I would even go for like a Taurus Model 85 or that inland. You know, the very low-end 38 Special Revolver is going to be so much a better gun. Just so much a better gun. So I would say stay away from <coughs> quirky guns. And that even covers that, uh, I think they did, I think it was uh, Forgotten Weapons did one on the Taurus Curve, which, you know, again, another quirky gun that nobody... They brought it out. They Somebody thinks they have a better mousetrap, and it turns out to be not a very good gun. So, you know, and not reliable. If it's not reliable, you can't use it for defense. Now, I would say that they don't help it any, because if you don't lubricate it, and you don't, you don't try to at least work with it to see if it functions properly and everything well then you're you're bound to fail and you know that's a that's a big problem and that's a big difference that nobody ever talks about between revolvers and semi-automatics is that you know a revolver you can basically buy you kind of wipe it down you can put the cartridges in it and it'll it'll fire it'll it'll work it'll fire you don't have to do a lot of preliminary anything you get a semi-automatic like a Taurus Curve or any of these small pocket rocket guns or anything else, you got to kind of test them out to see what ammo they like or to make sure that you don't have a bad magazine or to figure out how to lubricate them properly so they work. You know, you got to figure those things out. There's a lot more things to figure out with a semi-automatic than there is a revolver. I mean, face it, a revolver, you put the cartridges in and you, you're basically good. You keep the, the outside and the bore wiped out and it's not, not going to have any problems, you know. It's, it's a lot easier and that's one of the simplicity arguments for um, the revolver and it was in, in way back in the day for the military revolver, you know. You don't want something quirky like a Bergman you know or so or a borchard or something like that you don't want some quirky thing like that when you can have a very reliable revolver especially if it's and your revolver can usually be a large bore and a little bit more powerful um, so you know back in the day there were good arguments for the military revolver most of those have kind of gone away and with service style revolver uh, automatics service style automatics not service revolvers service automatics are a lot a lot better made a lot more forgiving and a very very good you know very reliable very good gun but the smaller you get that's when that's when uh, uh, problems can arise because everything is being made more compact and they may be a little less efficient inside the magazine may not be as good the uh, if you remember right you know way back people used to have bobtail 45s and all these little cut down 1911 type guns uh, some of them worked some of them didn't you know sometimes you can you can make things too small and too compact or you realize that it introduces a whole nother level of of complexity 
and it, or it throws just throws off the durability and reliability that you're used to with a full-size pistol so no I'm not surprised the s333 is a piece of junk I'm not surprised that people buy them <laughs> to be honest because mo a lot of people buy a gun as a talisman or a totem thinking having it is going to solve their problems it's not but it can go a long way if you've got a good one it, it can it can be a great help but it's a it's a tool it's not a uh, luck charm in and of itself and I'm not surprised that something like the Taurus Curve, which someone thinks is a great idea, turns out not to be a good idea. So, anyway, that's how I look upon those. Okay, in a restricted area where you can own, where you cannot own semi-automatic firearms or defensive firearms like ARs, which is the best lever action to use? Something like a Winchester or Marlin 3030 or one that is chambered for that's hard to read chambered for a uh, pistol cartridge like 45 Colt 4440 3840 38 special 357 I'd say that there are a couple other ones in there too that are obsolete there's 3220 2520 a couple of those are in there too so um, you know here's here's my viewpoint and a lot of people disagree with this but I believe that your best defensive uh, gun in a lever action is, and I'm talking defense against people and perhaps against a larger, a, a large creature that's that's there. You know, kind of kind of the thing is, uh, is 30-30. I think it's a great cartridge. I think it's very underrated. I think it's um, probably one of the best things on the market is a 30-30. I mean, it's powerful, it's reliable. Uh, the reason I don't really care for the PCC ones, they're fun to shoot. I mean, I, I'll tell you this right now, they're, they're really fun to shoot. But what I don't like about them is it's a, for the same amount of effort, you can get the power of a 30-30, and um, that's, that's nice to have. So you don't have to get an underpowered cartridge. Yes, they do have greater capacity in most cases, but I don't know that that's all as important. I like I like power. I like that combination of power. I've often said if you have the the uh, rifle pistol combination that shoots the same cartridge, you either have an overly powerful pistol or an underpowered rifle, and uh, that's usually what you wind up with. You know, it's uh, a 45 Colt and all these can be great, and I think 454 Casal lever gun would be in there too that's that's a nice that'd be a nice gun to have but i you know just the those things are all incredibly expensive i think and and you can get a before the madness started i think for under 400 bucks you can get a marlin 3030 and that's just a very nice gun to have so i would say that to the people who say 92 or yeah i know on somebody some people have said 73s and I have shot a 73. I, I'm very familiar with them. And, and no, 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 no on a 73. No, no, no. The modern ones are nice. And, now with a short, and I think a lot of people who recommend those are looking at ones that have the short stroke kits and, um, you know, and, and the modern U-Birdie ones. I'll, I'll give them that. The modern U-Birdies with a short stroke kit might be a nice, 
nice gun to have. But you can't just sit there and say, hey, a 73 is great. There are a lot of a lot of old 73s around that probably uh, should not be pressed in the service. And, you know, I just, I just think that that toggle link is just not as good as the uh, 92 um, action is, and which was carried over into the 94. And then Marlin makes, you know, great lever actions. So that's what I would go to. Those are the best. And um, I would not put, that's one of the few rifles I just absolutely will not put optics on. Uh, putting optics on a 3030 is, or a, pistol carbine uh pistol caliber carbine and in a lever action carbine is just a waste in my opinion i mean i know that all the advantages and everything but boy those things are so light and handy and easy to use i think they're just so much better without without optics optics definitely clutter those so that's what i think about the fighting the fighting lever action and of course i do have to say that my favorite one and I don't, I don't have one, but I've always, for years, for probably 20 years, I have wanted either a 95 and 405 Winchester or an 86 and 4570. Those, to me, are kind of the the ultimate lever actions. You know, they still hold enough rounds so that you can defend yourself if you had to. It's not like you're using a single shot or, um, you know, a side by side uh, um, double rifle. But man, alive, those things, those things really can pack some oomph especially the 95. Okay, here's another question. What is the most overrated handgun in your opinion? Oh, well, of course, this is just opinion. To me, the most overrated handgun is the Colt Single Action Army. It's without question. Um, slow to load, slow to unload, uh, fixed sights that are while they can be adjusted, it usually takes a file and a vise. You know, you kind of have to kind of turn the barrel all this stuff I do not want to do, especially on a very expensive handgun. So um, I don't like them in any form. They they are iconic. I love the way they look, and I really like you know all the nostalgia, all the history, all that stuff with them. But as plain shooting guns, I don't like them. I don't really care for them in 45 Colt either, although that is the iconic cartridge, simply because the cylinder walls are so thin. I've just never felt really comfortable with that. Never really liked that. So, uh, those are the uh, those are the that's the those are the reasons, and that's the gun. But you know, for every other reason, for collecting and for everything else, it's 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 absolutely a wonderful gun. Uh, the single action guns I like are Rugers. I like those, but they I don't care for the ones with the traditional appearance. The 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 Queros. I like the Blackhawks. Much more shootable, much better. Kind of what Elmer Keith was striving for in the 20s when, you know, he was taking uh, Bisleys and other things and putting adjustable sights on them and, and uh, trying to improve them. Kind of the uh, the Blackhawk kind of was, was really kind of down that road. I do have an old Hawes single action that I think is uh, an excellent gun. It actually shoots point of aim with 38 specials, so I like it. Um, I mean, point of aim at about anywhere from 15 to about 25 yards. It's just a very nice gun. Not pretty, but but nice. Okay, here's our last question, and that is, you speak glowingly of the Moisin Nagant rifle. Given that compared to any other World War II rifle, it always seems to be lacking, how do you justify liking it so much? 
Well, I, I can justify liking itself so much. It, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It is not fancy. It is not accurate. It is not technically brilliant. It is not any of those things. But it is effective. And when you look at the Soviet army in World War II, not only was that the, the best gun for them, that was probably the only rifle that they could manufacture in that quantity that they could hand out, use, had the kind of durability and reliability they're looking for. It, it was really the only choice that they had. Uh, the SVD effectively failed because it was four to five times more expensive to produce. So was the right gun the right place at the right time? Anyway, that does it for this episode of Old School Guns. This is Old School Guns, out.